Hi, everybody. Good to be talking to you. If you're new here, my name is Joel, and we have teaching from the Bible every Sunday at Emmanuel. We're in the book of Genesis, the early chapters, with the story of Noah. Uh, the reason we, we take the Bible seriously is because Jesus takes the Bible seriously. Uh, if we worship Jesus, which we've just been doing through the songs, uh, we need to seriously listen to his teaching about the Old Testament scriptures. If we if we treat him with reverence, we have to treat the Bible with reverence. We don't get to choose because Jesus himself taught very clearly that the Old Testament are the very words of God. These scriptures are the very words of God. They can't be broken, he said. And so it's massively inconsistent. It doesn't work for us to say, yeah, Jesus, we worship you. You're the Lord. You're God. But what you have to say about the Bible, well, you know, you're kind of pre-modern and pre-scientific and you don't really understand the world, really. <laughs> you're, just, you're just Jesus. You can't do that. Uh, either Jesus is Lord, in which case the Old Testament is authoritative. It comes to us as the words of God. Or Jesus isn't Lord. We can't have it both ways. And, and so I say this especially for you if, you if you believe in Jesus and you're coming on this journey with us into the tricky world of the early chapters of Genesis, which I, I'm the same as you. I struggle with these stories. I find them confusing. I find them hard to fit with the paradigms of, and the, the apparent findings of contemporary science. I sort of think, how does this all fit? I know those are real issues, but we must, if we worship Jesus, nevertheless come to the page of God's word with the posture of humility and submission and say, Lord, if these are words that cannot be broken, help me to understand them and apply them to my life. Help me not to arrogantly dismiss them because they don't fit in with something I've, I've been taught by my culture. Now, that's a big deal for us, and it's not necessarily a, an instant thing. And if you're investigating Christianity or if you're a skeptic or you're just clicking on today to just discover what we teach in Emmanuel. I'm not saying that everyone agrees with me and that you have to agree with me. Just come on the journey with us today. See what you think of what the Bible teaches. I'm not saying everyone has to, to think that every word of this story about Noah is historically factual. I think it is. You may feel like, no, I can't, I can't take that seriously. That's fine. That's fine. Stay with us. Just follow the story. Just see. See for yourself if it speaks to you, nevertheless. That would be my advice. And that's what we're going to do as we go from Genesis and chapter 7, verse 17 to 23. Chapter 7, verse 17 and 23. Let's hear it read to us now. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. 
they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth a hundred and fifty days. Occasionally in some of our crime stories, the, the hero brings in the villain and it looks as though the stories are, looks like they're going to get sent down or maybe even you know, executed, hanged. It's going to be a, a, a final justice scenario for the, the bad guy. They're going to get brought to justice and the, the audience is pleased because you know, we know what wicked things they've done and they deserve it. Um, but there are those stories which have a kind of bittersweet ending because we... We, we observe the, the powerful forces of bureaucracy at work or we see how this criminal is able to negotiate some kind of murky compromise with the powers that be. If you bring me down, I'm going to bring you down with me. You know, I'm going to bring down the whole system because I've got dirt on you all. Or if you take this to court, you know there'll be a scandal. You can't take the scandal. You don't want that kind of heat. And the, the powers that be, you know, maybe the government or, or, or maybe even the crown, you know, they can't cope. And so somehow the criminal beats the rap. And we see that happen and we feel stung. We feel you know, that's, that's, a, that's a frustrating story, even if it's a true, true and accurate one, because these things happen. A lot of historical examples exist where, frankly, people who should have gone to the wall, so to speak, uh, they're doing fine even to this day. I don't know how you felt about 12 years ago when the massive bailouts took place, which in fact <laughs> ensured that some people who were massively guilty when, in terms of financial irregularities, they're doing fine even to this day. They, they, they got away with bonuses, in fact, and who paid for it? The taxpayer paid for it because they were deemed too big to fail. Too big to fail. If we bring justice to these individuals, we cut our own heads off and we can't do that. The cost is too high. And so people effectively, they, get, they kind of get to play chicken with us. Actually, getting justice done can be very costly. It's not always just flicking a switch. It's not always convenient for the, the protagonist of justice. It's not always convenient for the good guy to send the bad guy down. It, it might look convenient in the kind of simplistic movies that we watch, but any school teacher will know. If you, if you actually sign someone up for a detention, you've just given yourself a detention quite often. You've got to stay behind. You've got to make sure that they show up. If you give someone lines at lunchtime, that's your lunchtime, sitting with someone writing lines. When you'd rather be at the, the staff room where the martinis flow, I'm sure. You, if you're a parent, you know, I, I want to uh, teach you a lesson for what you've done. And I'm sure none of that's happening in anyone's house during the lockdown. Uh, you know that it, it costs you often. And so sometimes the villain of the piece gets to kind of play chicken with us. It's as simple as that. You know, if you, you take me down, I'm, I'm going I'm to take you down with me. And we feel manipulated. We feel blackmailed and we feel tricked, but we feel stuck. We don't really have a way out. Of that, And the reality is that people bring those kinds of dynamics even into their relationship with God. Have you noticed that? There are those kinds of just <laughs> unprincipled scoundrels, even in the Bible, who imagine that you can do that with God. The pe people who, in history who've done that. And they've actually found out 
You can't. Because you can't play chicken with God. God means it. God is not phased by a bit of inconvenience. He can do the paperwork. He can stay for the detention. He can afford whatever it costs. He can even afford the reputation and honor of his name to look bad. He can afford the reputation of his church to look bad. We've known people even in recent years to say, I'm going to carry on in my position as a leader in the church doing something highly immoral and illegal because God would never take me down because it will cost him too much. It would be too much for God. That's the kind of way people have come to think and come to talk. It may sound crazy, but it's literally so. Leaders have been known to get to that place. Think, well, God, God wouldn't be able to afford bringing me down. And they found out to their shock and dismay that they were quite wrong. God, it seems, is prepared to unwind everything if necessary. If he wants to bring justice to bear, if he wants to bring an end to abuse, he'll do it. Though it costs him the reputation of his church, he'll do it. He will unwind anything to get justice, including, as we see in this story, there's actually a pattern of this in the Bible. It's not the only place where people try to have one over with God and say, well, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't, for example, Jeremiah preaches to his generation in Judah in, in the book of Jeremiah. God's going to destroy the temple by sending the Babylonians in. And the people of the time laugh at Jeremiah. They mock him. They despise him. Eventually, they arrest him. They throw him in a dungeon for talking rubbish. God would never do that. This is the temple of the Lord. We are going to carry on totally ignoring God and rebelling against him. And he can't do anything about it because we're in the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. He's not going to let the temple of the Lord be destroyed, is he? Oh, Oh, he, he did. In fact, he did twice. God, God, it seems, is radically prepared to disrupt the infrastructure of our lives to get what he wants done. God is prepared to torch all our sacred cows, all the things that we hold in place and we seem to imagine will stay around forever. They can't possibly be challenged. This is, this is never going to change. God would never press reset on this part of my life. Now, the people that Noah lives alongside, that was perhaps the way they were expecting things to roll because they knew that the creation mandate from Genesis chapter 1 was that people were destined to rule over creation, to rule over nature, to subdue the earth and conquer it. And Noah is coming along saying there's going to be a flood so catastrophic that it will bring destruction to the human race. Now that to them would have sounded completely unthinkable because, well, we know God has told us that we are to subdue nature. Nature is not to subdue us. How wrong they were. Because whatever promises God had made mankind, he will fulfill them in his way. And often, friends, listen, please. God will fulfill the words of this book in ways that completely surprise us, ways we wouldn't have imagined and expected, in ways that disrupt our complacent and sometimes arrogant assumptions and expectations. 
God subverts our arrogant paradigms and narratives that we force on his world. He says, no, I don't have to answer to you. I can press reset on the whole creation project and start again with one family if I desire. And it turns out in Genesis chapter 7, he so did. He decided, right, okay, chaos on creation. The unthinkable became the reality. And we have to see this. Jesus makes this point very plain. This is one of the main lessons that Jesus himself, books later in the Bible, centuries, thousands of years later in the Bible, Jesus himself is making this very point. When he, he says to his generation, he says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They will be eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. He's just saying that the craziness is real. The, 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 the possibility, life could be going on ordinarily, eating, drinking, giving in marriage. It's fine. It's just normal human life. It's quite nice. It's quite complacent. It might even sound quite pious. And yet God says enough. God can say enough whenever he wants. And we need to hold him in that high position and hold ourselves in a low, humble place. Let him be the judge and not us. And as well as that, understand that the flood that the Bible describes is a sign of judgment to come. That is the testimony of this book. The unflinching testimony is that the, the flood was only a, a, a forward size, a down payment of a, a greater judgment that lies in wait for all creation. A flood of waters in time to come, as the, one of the epistles in the New Testament, Peter's letter, says, a flood of fire, effectively. Fire is to come. Now, fire, you know, what, what do you mean, literal fire? I don't know, but I know fire is a word chosen carefully. It speaks of intensity and passion and heat, discomfort, pain, destruction. This is, this is God. God. God will not put up with our ways forever. God won't let sin be ignored forever. He deals with it. And that's surely the message. And we might think, well, that's just ridiculous. I don't, take, I don't care. Even after COVID, even when life is disrupted like it has been for us, we can still be complacent. Even when there seem to be warning signs where life as we've known it in our complacent way for so long, where we haven't had to face the wars and the, the famines and the destructions of previous generations. We've lived like I have through relative complacency and affluence. Even when COVID comes along and says, the world can change in a month. The world can change in a week. Life can change. We don't know the future. It's difficult. It's a, it's a challenge to our overconfidence. But even then, it would seem... We stay complacent so easily and imagine, well, that's just the Bible. It's just, a, it's just it's an old, ancient, dusty book made up of bizarre fables. What does it have to say to us? I'm going to carry on with my life regardless of what the Bible says. And you might look good doing that in the same way that someone might look good you know, the first couple of seconds after they've leapt off a skyscraper. Somebody told that story of you know, somebody who's jumped off the top 
story and someone shouts out while they're falling, says, how's it going? And the falling person says, okay, so far. That's kind of our culture speaking, perhaps. Okay, so far. But it's the culture that's not seeing the possibility ahead that there's much more challenging judgments to come and we need to face that reality. We've got to. It's part of our human responsibility and it's part of the desperate message of this book. Be real. That's why these stories are in the Bible. And friends, if any of you are playing chicken with God, if any of you are saying, well, God won't get me. He's too busy. I'm getting away with this so far. So far, it's okay. Pull out now. Turn to him now. Call for forgiveness now. There's hope. There's a chance for change. Don't miss it. So we need to take God's justice seriously. But secondly, we need to take his sovereignty seriously. His sovereignty seriously. We see that in the way this paragraph describes all of the craziness of the flood, but clearly shows. Well, look at it. It's, it's, it starts there in the verse, first verse. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. Verse 17. By the way, 40 days... Did you know that today marks the 40th day since the lockdown was announced? Today. I didn't plan that, by the way, that I'm preaching on this very day, this message about 40 days, and it was 40 days. I didn't plan it. Hey, maybe, maybe God wants to speak to us through the preaching of the Bible. Who knew? It's just, it's just fascinating. But there you go. 40 days. And then you see straight after it says the waters increased and bore up the ark. And it carries on and on and on, describing in layer after layer the, the, the kind of catastrophic proportions of the flood. And even it closes with the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days further. And then in the next chapter, it talks about another 150 days while the water abated. And then we have the kind of the little show with the, the birds, which you may know if you know this story from the Bible, the dove and the, and the raven. It was a waiting experience. It was a process of long waiting. And it was waiting in the context of uncertainty, confusion, Disruption, disorientation, intensity, claustrophobia. <sighs> Sounds familiar, right? Waiting even to know how long this is going to last. It, it's just going on and on, isn't it? And who knows what to expect from the government? Who knows what to expect from lockdown? Who knows? We, we wish we knew. Some of us are making our predictions, but... The reality is we don't, and we can't know even if there's another wave of the virus that might come. We can't know how long it will be before there's tests available and before there's uh, vaccines available and even availability of vaccines, you know, the circulation of vaccines. It's, it's going to take time and it's going to take patience and it's ex extremely difficult because it's stretching, it's exhausting, exasperating, confusing and... and and yet God seems to be taking us into the chaos. It does look kind of chaotic in this passage here. It's, it's chaotic in a different way. I mean, for us, it's not knowing, you know, all kinds of stuff. We don't know what's going to happen with jobs. Some of you, that's very personal right now. Maybe you've been furloughed. Maybe you've already gone through something worse. Maybe you've been made redundant. Maybe you're, you're struggling with your own business. 
that you started and had high hopes for and you're not even sure if it's going to survive. Maybe it's already not surviving. But just the future world, what does it even look like? What what does society look like? What does so much look like? And we're struggling and struggling and struggling and it feels like It feels like what I read here, the waters prevailed. The waters prevailed. The waters prevailed. And it says it a fourth time, the waters prevailed. Four repetitions in one paragraph of that very ominous phrase. The waters prevailed. It's it's not just, this isn't a nature program. Prevailed, it's almost a military word. It's like the waters were winning. The waters advanced. And, and twice else it, it says the waters increased. Different word, but laying it on so thick. And the waters, by the way, in the Bible, the waters, flood waters, storm waters, this isn't neutral. The context is the first few words of the Bible, pages earlier, where it describes the way God began things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, and there was great uh, vo- emptiness over the deep, and the Spirit uh, hovered over the waters. In other words, at the first stage of creation, before there was form, before there was content, there was, there was chaotic water, if you like. The idea of waters, not, not literal water perhaps, but this idea of chaos, that water is associated with it. And when you get into the Bible, you see that theme spread out. Waters, the concept, the concept of waters which are unknown and baffling and unpredictable and storms and winds and the peculiarities of it can seem evil. And they're prevailing here, four times over. Prevailed, prevailed, increased, increased, prevailed, prevailed. What's going on? The the waters are winning and chaos is king, right? Well, that can be how it seems at least. Chaos is king. Is that that the truth? Is Is that reality? Is that your worldview? It is the worldview of most of our Brightonian culture this is this is our worldview right it's what we grow up in this is the water we swim in chaos is king chance is king everything is accidental everything is meaningless well if that's the universe we live in friends what, where do we turn to for hope strangely people think of that as a liberating worldview i tell you there's a much better one <laughs> and that's what we see here although we see the chaos we understand from the bible that the chaos is not King, the chaos is a servant. The chaos, yeah. The the waters, everything. Everything is under his thumb. Everything is under his authority. Everything. Without exception, he is in absolute supreme control of every particle in existence. Everything, even the so-called chaos. Yes, chaos, by very definition, is out of control, except for the fact that it's in his control. There's nothing in the universe that's out of control, except perhaps God, who is controlling all things, holding it all together. Jesus taught us and teaches us now, teaches you now through what I'm teaching today, That the chaos isn't king, there is a king who is using even the chaos for his purposes. He knows what he's doing. 
And we can take comfort. We should take comfort from it. We should remind ourselves. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without him knowing. He knows every hair on our head. He is in perfect control. Even those things that seem so disruptive, he's in them. He is sovereign. Be comforted by the certainty. Friends, whatever's happening to stock market, to businesses, to work, to family, to, the, to the, just the ordinary fabric of society, he's in it. He is in it. He's sovereign. Let's look finally at this seriousness of his mercy. We need to take his justice seriously. We need to take his sovereignty seriously. And finally, we need to take his mercy seriously. I love the way it says just at the end of the chapter, only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. See, it's always like this in the Bible. It turns out it's always about who you're with. Noah and those who were with him. Who are you with? That's it, really. I, I want to ask you that. Who are you with? See, Noah is like a prototype here. He's like a kind of... Down, down version, like an early version. You know, like kind of Windows 2.0. It's like an early version or, you know, like whatever, you know, Apple thing. You just, it's, it's like the iPhone whatever. <laughs> I can't remember. My kids would laugh at me. Because the Bible keeps repeating the story until we get to the perfect version. Jesus is, is the one that we need to be with. Noah and all who are with him were safe. And friends, not only that, but look at what it says just at the start of the paragraph, verses 17 and 18. It said this, the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. See, evil can do its worst, but honestly, the ultimate truth, well, it says it in the book of Romans, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. There's a place you can stand. There's a person you can join and be with who is safety itself. He is the ark of protection. He is the place of shelter. He's the shield. He's the rock of salvation. He is my fortress. I shall never be shaken. Jesus, the one who on the day that he was nailed to his wooden craft, he, he bore the brunt of the curse of our sin, carrying it himself. He went through its worst curse. And thereby, he kind of drew the fangs. He drew the teeth. He drew the poison so that those who connect with Jesus, those who belong to Jesus, those who may be youth today for the first time, believe in Jesus, turn to him and trust him. Those who do that, the Bible says, shall not be put to shame. In fact, you're lifted out of many waters and your feet are set on a rock and a new song is put in your mouth. Because Jesus Jesus dealt with the flood. Jesus dealt with the storm. Jesus went through it all, meaning that however bad life gets for us, whatever it throws at us, it's almost as though it only has the effect of bringing us closer to him. It lifts us up. 
Our sufferings even, our frustrations and disappointments, they're opportunities for us to draw near. They're opportunities for us to be lifted above, to prevail even above the floods that prevail. And this isn't cheap and trivial. I don't mean to be flippant. I, the suffering is real. Floods are real. Death is so real. But for those who are in Christ, you know, death ultimately it can only bring us to him. It loses its sting. And so you and I can go through life being like those New Testament Christians. You could say like Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, life is mine, death is mine, the, the past, the present, the future, it's all, it's all been made mine. The flood, Noah could say, yeah, it truly was Noah's flood because in Christ, he was safe from the curse of it. And he could know God's reality carrying him through it. This is the provision God's made for us in his son Jesus, who is more than a, a handkerchief, more than a, a, a security blanket, more than a, a nice cup of tea and a cuddle. Jesus is our suffering servant who went through it all for us, before us, on our behalf, and carries us with him. He's the one that has been through death and come through. He's the one that turns to us from the other side and says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Which is why, friends, there's, there's, no, there's no other ark. There's no better boat. There isn't, in fact, and it says that only Noah was left. There's, a, there's an important point the Bible has to make. Only Jesus is the saviour. There is only one way to be rescued from the, the poison of our own sin, our own shame, our own guilt. There's only one saviour who can deal even with the penalty for our sin, the punishment that follows, the justice that awaits us, which will await us. You will have to face God one day, you will, you will. The Bible's very clear. And if we're real, if we stop and consider, we ought to understand that this world makes no sense if there's no justice at the end of it. How could people have got away with what they've done? How could the wicked prosper and prevail? How could people live in grinding poverty while others are selfishly, greedily getting happily through life and living to a ripe old age? Is that all that the world has to say for itself? Is that justice? No, we know it isn't. We know there must be a recompense. There must be a judge. The bad news is that we will all face him. How do we expect to do how do we expect to breeze through that law court? Do you think you can play chicken with God? Think you can win him over? No, you need a saviour. You need a safe place. You need someone who's been through the storm, been through the flood, and knows the way. There was a man that was on the Titanic. My son Calvin was reading a book recently. A true story about a preacher that was travelling from England to America and he had his daughter with him. And when he saw that no one was going to, not many were going to survive, he took his daughter and put her on a lifeboat. He gave his life jacket to someone else, someone else's daughter. And he went down into the waters and he started calling out to people. And he, he's, 
he shouted out to strangers. He quoted the, the Bible and said, call to me uh, all nations, for I am God and there is no other. Call unto me and be saved, it says in the book of Isaiah. He's crying out in the freezing Arctic waters as he knows he's living his last few minutes. Cry out to me all. And, and people, people around him, listen, who is that guy? And people say, well, what, what do you, how do I be saved? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus. There's no hope for the boat, but there's hope for you, he said. Believe on the Lord Jesus. And he went down, he died as other people were believing. Even at the last moments of their life, there were people turning to Jesus. In the waters that drowned, there's a saviour who reaches out. There's a saviour today reaching out to you. You might think, oh, I just clicked on this talk. Let's don't be melodramatic. No, you clicked on it for a reason because God wants to speak to you during this time of COVID. He wants to say, turn to Jesus and be saved. Turn and be saved. Turn and be rescued. The Bible says that he's going to shake all things. He's going to shake more things than the economy. He's going to shake more things than our health. He says everything that can be shaken is going to be shaken. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Where are you standing? Are you, are you built, believing in the titanics of this world? The steel boats that cannot be sunk, except they are. And they go down. Or are you saying, I cling to the wooden craft of the cross of Jesus. I put my trust in Jesus. Why don't you do that today? Yeah. Just pray. Pray with me right now. Will you pray this prayer with me? Just close your eyes if you like. I'll pray. And you in your heart, wherever you are, in your living room, in your kitchen, in your bedroom, pray this prayer with me. Yeah? Just pray it with me. You might want to pray it out loud or just silently, but pray it. God, I've lived my life as if you don't matter. And I can see that I was wrong. Say, say, say these very words in your heart. Say them to him. I can see I was wrong. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the things I've said that I shouldn't have said. Things I've thought that I shouldn't have thought. The things I've done that I shouldn't have done. And I'm sorry for the things I should have said, should have done, should have thought that I didn't. I'm so sorry. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die upon the cross so that I could be forgiven for my sins. And I, right now I turn away from my own life, lived my way, and I don't put my trust in me, my good works, my best efforts, my self-help. I put my trust in in Jesus the Saviour who died for me. Please come into my life. Please live at the heart of my life. Accept me into your family. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, we want to help you and we will tell you more about how you can make a next step. You might even want to make a comment on the YouTube page if you're there now to tell us that you prayed that prayer. But whatever, we're going to help you in this service. Thank you for being with us. Look forward to speaking to you again soon.